Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 55, the book of Matthew, chapter 15, the conclusion. Before we continue in Matthew chapter 15, there's a couple of housekeeping issues I would like to get out of the way because I am regularly asked about these things and I enjoy the opportunity to offer an explanation. The first is my characterization over these past many years of something called the church. And second is my less than flattering view that all too often Bible scholars overreach by either trying to forensically examine the minds of Bible characters or authors of the Bible books who lived 2,000 years ago or more, or they at times dismiss things clearly written in the Word because they cannot bring themselves to accept those things at face value or as accurate and true. First, the church. Now, one of the most difficult but common things that humans deal with is labels. Labels. The term the church is one such label. That is, we tend to define people and institutions, historical events, dozens of other things, with very abbreviated words that we call labels, assuming that someone else is going to understand what that label means when we say it or when we write it, or that there is only one understood definition of that label. Depending on one's viewpoint, this is either a lazy or it's an expedient method of communication. And the truth of it probably lies somewhere in the middle. As an example, in the political world, if we say liberal or conservative, those are labels. They are labels that were created which seek to lump together a, a, a complex, a rather long listing of political philosophies and preferences concerning many social and government issues. But I think I can say without hesitation that what the detailed description about the simple labels liberal and conservative mean to one doesn't always mean the same thing to another. So the convenience of describing broad swaths of people with a one-word label serves a, a useful purpose for politicians, but it's hardly intellectually honest. So it is with the term, the church. If I called upon several of you, privately and separately, to define the church, I promise you, I'd get a wide variation of responses. That would doubly be the case <clears throat> if I then reached out to people of several different denominations. So I want to tell you what I mean to communicate. 
when I use that term, and also to explain that it is organically connected to the term Christian. A thing called the church does not exist in the New Testament, but it is read backwards into it in order to serve a purpose. Rather, the term that we find is in the Greek, ecclesia. Now, ecclesia is a rather broad term that means assembly or congregation. Even in English, the term church is somewhat broad, and it can mean a number of different things. In the Webster Dictionary, church is defined as a building. It's a building where a group of Christians meet, or it can refer to a group of religious people of almost any belief system. Haven't you ever heard of the Church of Satan? Used in another way, it can mean a public worship service. And yet, in another sense, it is a label to describe the entire body of Christians taken as a whole. When I use the term, I nearly always mean it as the entire body of Christians as a whole, but sometimes I'll add the word institutional before the word church, as then referring to the governing body of a denomination or of denominations in general. But I want to take this another step further. Without doubt, the church as a label refers to the body of Gentile Christians, practicing a Gentile created religion as one sort or another. The church generally does not recognize Messianic Judaism as even being part of the church. Jewish involvement is rather rare. At the church congregation level, it's pretty much unheard of in church government. Such a thing was not contemplated. It did not exist that way in the New Testament where we predominantly find Jews as the leadership of followers of Christ. Now, whether it is the Eastern Christian church branch, such as the Greek Orthodox or the Coptic, so many others, or the Western Christian church branch, consisting primarily of Catholic and Protestant offshoots, this same label and attributes of the church applies. That thus, those who consider themselves as members of the Eastern or Western church branches are Gentiles that label themselves as Christians, regardless of the widely varying, even opposing doctrines and practices. Now, taken as a whole, the church has, since no later than around the third century, shunned its, its exclusively Hebrew foundation as laid out in the Bible. It's gone so far as to disavow <clears throat> entire sections of the Bible, many of its commandments, 
in order to distance itself from the Hebrew people. The church intentionally made it impossible for Jews to be part of it. And there have been times that Jews were murdered by the hundreds for having tried to become part of it. The church abolished nearly all biblical practices that were central to Hebrew religious society based on the laws of Moses and invented new ones. Replacement practices, replacement celebrations that were acceptable to the pagan Gentile religions that ruled the day. Naturally, since the church is so large and exists in every corner of the world, what I have just said to you is a broad generalization. But generalization that is full of exceptions is the inherent nature of any label used for any purpose. Therefore, because the underlying nearly, uni nearly universal understanding of the meaning of the term the church is just as I described it, whether you want to admit it or not, So, because of that, I must view it in a less than favorable light because it does not accurately reflect the religion, the beliefs, and the practices of our Savior Yeshua. It just doesn't. Nor of the Holy Scriptures in general. Now, a second and associated level, uh, label, the term Christian, carries with it the same burden. Christian is a label for a person that is, first and foremost, a Gentile. Second, a member of the church. The third meaning is as a follower of Christ. However, as the centuries have gone by, the formerly automatic meaning of being a member of the church and of being a Christ follower in any kind of a real sense has waned. However, even for the mainstream of members of the church, the following of Christ is less based on the actual historical Jesus and instead based on a contrived version that has reimagined him as a Gentile or perhaps as some kind of a universal or generic man. Further, the supposed following of him is based far less on what Jesus said and more on what Paul said. And both of them have had their words twisted and reformulated to fit a predetermined agenda or, agenda, or they've been interpreted outside of their authentic Jewish first-century context, which is the only legitimate and intellectually honest context they can be considered. The bottom line is that for myself, and I know for many of you, should I call myself a Christian, I mean it only in the most limited sense. I and you are followers of the historical 
Yeshua in His Jewish context as the divine Lord and Savior, as defined by the Bible, as not defined by the church. Now, as concerns the issue of Bible scholars, man, <laughs> while before about 200 years ago, it was unthinkable that a Bible scholar would be anything but a learned Jew who believed in the God of Israel or a Gentile believer in Christ, that's changed. It would be impossible to give you a percentage. However, my best guess, guess based on anecdotal evidence, is that of modern Bible scholars, by that I mean 20th and 21st century Bible scholars, perhaps a third, maybe a little more, not only don't believe in Jesus, they don't believe in God. See, it's only that the Bible is their chosen field of academic study, just as medicine or archaeology might be for others. See, this is why most universities today that even offer Christian study include it within the philosophy department. So while such scholars can be quite astute at translation of the original languages and bring up amazing things about ancient history, this unbelieving portion of Bible scholars has a tendency to think that they can not only get into the minds of these first century biblical writers and explain the motives for why they wrote what they did, in other words, heavenly inspiration played no role in it in any way, but also that these writers were often wrong or they intentionally created legend and myth to captivate a hope for audience. Now, needless to say, I have a less than favorable view of some of their conclusions about the meaning of biblical passages, even if they can at times offer some profound insight into the meaning of the original language words that were used within the ancient texts, and in providing some historical contextual background. So. When you detect a somewhat negative tone from me towards the generally accepted mental vision of the label, the church, and a skepticism towards the conclusions put forward by some of the noted Bible scholars whom I know to be non-believers, that's exactly what I intend. You're not getting it wrong. I didn't have a bad day. I'll say one last time. I completely acknowledge that the, there are exceptions to the rule. Even, even though the definitions of the labels the church and Christian I have put forward, they're accurate. That's the truth.
We may not like to hear it. That's the truth. And that the bulk of Bible scholars are excellent. They're well studied and the bulk of them are believers. So my intent is not to offend but to challenge long-held but dubious beliefs, customs, and doctrines, some of which are so very harmful to our relationship with God because they're not the truth. Okay, let's move on. With all that in mind, <clears throat> when we left off last week, it was with Yeshua being confronted by a Gentile woman who wanted him to vanquish a demon that was possessing her daughter. Now, at first, he simply ignored her as if she were invisible. He eventually did speak to her at the urging of his disciples, but only to tell this Gentile woman in the strongest terms, he didn't come for people like her. He didn't come for Gentiles, but only, he said, for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She wouldn't take no for an answer and kept after him. So he next responded with an insult. Yes, an insult. He told her that the food for the children, which is a metaphor for Israel, ought not be given to dogs. Pretty offensive metaphor for Gentiles. The woman brushed aside the insult, countered, you know, even the dogs get some of what the children get in the form of crumbs of their food that fall off the table because the dogs are there to lap them up. Now, Yeshua was so impressed by this pagan Gentile woman agreeing that one, he indeed was not sent for Gentiles, but only for Hebrews. Number two, for accepting where Gentiles fit in his mission and in the pecking order. And three, that she was persistent and firmly believing he could exercise a demon from her daughter. So he complied. The story ends abruptly with Jesus leaving the area where he was, which was somewhere north of the Galilee, and returning to his current area of residence near the lake. Let's pick up by rereading a portion of Matthew chapter 15. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. We're going to start reading at verse 29 and go to the end. <clears throat> Yeshua left there and he went along the shore of Lake Kinneret. He climbed a hill, sat down, and large crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. They laid them at his feet, and he healed them. People were amazed as they saw mute people speaking, crippled people cured, lame people walking, blind people seeing, and they said, Bercha, blessing to the God of Israel. Yeshua called his Talmudim, his disciples, to him, and he said, I feel sorry for these people because they've been with me for three days. Now they have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry because they might collapse on the way home. And the Talmudim said to him, 
Where are we going to find enough loaves of bread in this remote place to satisfy so big of a crowd? Yeshua asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few fish. After telling the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, made a bercha, broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples who gave them to the people. Everyone ate his fill and they took seven large baskets full of the leftover pieces. Those eating numbered 4,000 men plus women and children. After sending the crowd away, he got in the boat and went off to the region of Magadan. Now what we just read is disputed by a preponderance of modern Bible scholars. And the reason is that this group sees the recording of a second miraculous feeding of several thousand people as unnecessary. Therefore, it's just redundant. And it's simply Matthew's mistake. That is, he accidentally, due to bad information or perhaps due to two different traditions that were in circulation about Jesus feeding a crowd of people, that he created two separate instances of Yeshua feeding a large group when in fact there was only one. See, now this is one of the reasons for my introduction today. Notice that these particular scholars that are firmly convinced of a scriptural error rely only on their opinions. That's all they have but with no biblical or historical evidence to back it up. But since such an expert opinion has become so shared and accepted on a widespread basis within modern Bible academia, it now passes as fact. However, in opposition to this widely held opinion, there was a very good reason for Yeshua's second feeding of the crowds by means of a miraculous multiplication of food. It was a lesson in hopes of teaching the disciples something that they clearly did not receive the first time. We read in Mark that even after the obvious miracle of multiplying five loaves and two fishes into enough to feed around 10,000 people, and the equally obvious lesson that Yeshua was using to show the disciples that they were the ones meant to facilitate the feeding of these lost sheep of the house of Israel. But the disciples still didn't get it. See, when after the first incident of feeding, so many was so little, the disciples got into a boat on the Sea of Galilee and they began rowing towards home, but a storm suddenly blew up. Yeshua senses the danger therein. He went walking on the water to calm the disciples and the turbulent waters and to give them yet another demonstration of who He was in reality. Because in the Bible and in Hebrew tradition, only God could walk on water. Mark, in commenting in his gospel on the reaction of the stupefied and the soaked disciples, to what just transpired, said this in Mark 6, 51 and 52. 
he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. On the contrary, their hearts had been made stone-like. Notice that Mark blames their being so unprepared to accept Jesus calming the storm and walking on the waves is because even after participating in what he calls the miracle of the loaves, their hearts, their minds, were hardened. That is, they remained hard-headed towards the divine entity, uh, rather identity of Christ. They were still hostage to their traditions. So what we learn is that the first feeding of the multitudes did not have the desired effect on the disciples that Yeshua had hoped for. Thus a very good reason to do it all again, as Matthew and Mark record, is to perhaps try to achieve a better outcome this next time, especially after the walking on water incident may have finally been the demonstration they needed in order for them to understand the nature of who their master was. Then, of course, there's this. Yeshua himself says there were two separate feeding events. In the next chapter of Matthew, chapter 16, we read in verses 8 and 10, But Yeshua, aware of this, said, Such little trust you have. Why are you talking with each other about not having bread? Don't you understand yet? Don't you remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you filled? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many baskets you filled? See, this new story begins now with Yeshua climbing up a hill, sitting down, and immediately a huge crowd begins to gather. I can't proceed without noting that some commentators, some Bible commentators, see this scene of Yeshua climbing a hill to speak and heal, something he's done before, as Christ acting out something that's going to come in the end times, something prophesied by the Old Testament prophets, and that is healing all people and doing it on a mass scale. Now, a second is that other commentators see his act of feeding the thousands as pointing towards the Eucharist, the establishment of the sacrament of communion, the first of which is the eating of bread and drinking of wine at Yeshua's final Passover on the eve before he's executed. Now, I can't say with certainty that these meanings and symbolisms are not so. However, I am skeptical. And I see these commentators' beliefs more likely as based on later Christian traditions and denominational doctrines being read backwards into the story. The most cited reason for seeing Christ's actions of going up on a hill and healing myriads of people as a symbol of a later fulfillment of end times prophecy is found in Isaiah 2 verses 1 through 3. Here's what it says. 
This is the word that Yeshayahu, the son of Emotes, that's Isaiah, the son of Emotes, saw concerning Judah and Yerushalayim, the Acharit Hayamim, future times, the mountain of Adonai's house will be established as the most important mountain. It will be, be regarded more highly than the other hills and all the Goyim, all the nations, all the Gentile nations will stream there. And many peoples will go and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Adonai, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion will go forth Torah, the word of Adonai from Jerusalem. Now, it is that the belief of some Bible commentators is that this passage of Isaiah directly correlates to Yeshua's actions at the Sea of Galilee because he walked up a hill and then he healed people. Now, while that's a really lovely thought and it's not out of the question, yet when we compare the two passages, we see about the only commonality between them is the mention of a hill. And Isaiah on top of a hill or a mountain will be God's house, the temple. The temple is not present in Matthew, except if we spiritualize it rather extensively and call Yeshua the temple. In Isaiah, there's no healing, but that is what occurs in Matthew. In Isaiah, it's the word of God going forth. That's not what happens in Matthew. In Isaiah, it's Gentiles streaming to the temple. In Matthew, there is no mention of Gentiles. Even though we can assume there must have been a few scattered ones among the large crowd of Jews. See, however, because the church is exclusively Gentile-oriented, then the thought is to replace the Jews that stand before Christ in our Matthew scene with Gentiles in Isaiah. Now, as for the Matthew event of feeding the crowds is a foretaste of the creation of the Eucharist. First of all, the Eucharist is a Roman church-created sacrament that's about the taking of communion. Second, the event that spawned the Christian tradition of communion was the breaking of bread and drinking of wine at Passover in Jerusalem. Third, the Matthew narrative of the feeding of the thousands involved bread and fish, not bread and wine. And there's no mention of Yeshua connecting the multiplication of the fishes and the loaves with the partaking of his own body. So without further evidence, I just can't connect. Yeshua sitting on a hill feeding and healing people with the end times events of Isaiah 2 or with communion especially the Eucharist. So Yeshua is sitting on a hill, the crowds are gathering, but for what purpose? Why are they coming? The same it's always been throughout Matthew's Gospel account to this point in Christ's ministry. They're coming to be healed. They're coming to the Sadiq, the Jewish miracle-working holy man. There's no thought that they are coming with the view of Jesus as the Messiah, they're coming for practical reasons. They have illnesses, lameness, blindness, other infirmities for which only a divine miracle is the solution. Now, one might say that because they look to a holy man and his connection to God, 
that it was for spiritual reasons they came, that would be overlooking that in their era, there was no separation, separation or compartmentalization between everyday life and the spiritual. It's to our modern detriment that we do make this distinction. For such separation is the opposite of what God teaches us in His Word. Our everyday lives and our spiritual lives are one in the same in His eyes. Jesus heals all, all who are brought before Him. The people continue to be amazed, not just at His ability to do miracles, but at the huge volume of miracles that He performed with never a recorded failure. In verse 31, we're told that the reaction of the people was that they said a berka to the God of Israel. That is, they said a blessing to God. And while we find those words in the complete Jewish Bible, in almost all other translations we will find, and they glorified the God of Israel. There's a couple of things to be gleaned from this. First, only Jews would have glorified or said a berka to the God of Israel. Gentiles practice pagan religions. Certainly they would not, they would have praised their God or gods, not Israel's God. So these healings were certainly of Jews. Now, there's nothing wrong with using the term glorified to explain the Jews' reaction. However, that's such a broad term. Because one has to ask, how might a Jew glorify God? How would you glorify God? The way Jews in that era glorified God was by saying a blessing to Him. So if both translations are correct, it's only that one is more specific than the other, and what a lesson for us. So the second takeaway is one that may seem obvious, but you know we just so often overlook it. When we are healed or rescued from a bad situation, the proper response of any believer is to immediately glorify God. Not any God. Not glorifying the church, but only the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. That is how we credit Him and we thank Him. The next verse says that Jesus called His disciples to Him, said He felt sorry for the people because they'd been there for three days. Now they have nothing to eat. See, He was afraid they would collapse from hunger on their journeys home. So he asked the disciples how much food they had with him. They replied they had a few fish and seven loaves of bread. So let's set the scene. Whereas in the first occasion of the feeding of the crowds, they were there for one day, and it was becoming evening, and it was time for the people to eat supper. Here in the second occasion, the healing session had gone on for three days. We don't know the time of day when this concern about food arose. Even if the people had come somewhat prepared with their own food this time, clearly most of them never anticipated being there for three days. But how important this event was for them. Being in Yeshua's presence, 
even if it was only for what he could do for them that no one else could, that was worth whatever discomforts and hunger they might face. This was the opportunity of a lifetime, one they may or may not ever have again. Now, is there significance in the three days? That is the number three. Possibly. But I doubt it, because if the reference is to Yeshua's coming execution, burial, and resting in the tomb, the expression is three days and three nights. That's the sign of Jonah. Not what I see is merely a statement of fact that the healing sessions went on for three days. With that length of time helping us to understand Christ's concern over the need for food for the people before they left. I'm going to highlight yet again the Bible's concern over food. <laughs> food is always front and center in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, and very much so with Yeshua. It goes well beyond merely a hunger issue or a health issue. It is indeed also an obedience issue and a spiritual issue. If only we'll have the ears to hear. And because food is central to God's Word, such that He set down important principles about it, then it's no wonder that food and feeding is used as a metaphor so often by Jesus and by others in the Bible. Well, after the meager amount of food is revealed, barely enough for the disciples, let alone for the masses before Him, Yeshua instructs the crowd they should sit down. Why tell him to sit? Why would Matthew even include this bit of information? Likely because sitting tells the folks something's coming. Something's coming. It's to create a little anticipation. Puts them in a position of getting ready to be served some way. Now they may not know, have known exactly why they were to sit, but they complied. Now Yeshua has the seven loaves and the fishes set before him. He gives thanks to God. The complete Jewish Bible says he said a bercha, and then he broke the bread. Now it's interesting to note that the Greek word used this time in regard to Jesus making the blessing before the bread is Eucharisteo. Sound familiar? Yes, it's where the Roman church got the word Eucharist from. The Greek lexicons explain Eucharisteo is meaning to give thanks. It's a generic word. It can be used in many situations, only has spiritual connotation if it's used in a spiritual context. So because the church sacrament of the Eucharist was created long after New Testament times, then we see how a Bible commentator might want us to read back into this story the mention of Jesus giving thanks as a forerunner to the communion ceremony simply because the generic Greek word that, uh, that means to give thanks, Eucharisteo, is used. The problem is such a giving of thanks to God, specific prayer blessing, was standard when Jews ate. 
not at all relegated to use at some specific or highly spiritual event. Well, next we see the same thing happen that happened at the first feeding of a large crowd. Yeshua delegated to the disciples the job of handing out the bounty that He provided. Now, all of them may or may not have finally understood the message. Regardless, it's obvious to us. The one gospel writer that was actually there, very likely, was there when this happened was John. This might be why, of all the countless things he could have written about, but only the relatively few that he did, he chose to include this. In John 21, 17, the third time he said to him, Shimon bar Yochanan, Simon son of John, are you my friend? Shimon was hurt that he questioned him a third time. Are you my friend? So he replied, Lord, you know everything. You know I'm your friend. Yeshua said to him, then feed my sheep. See, feed my sheep. It's clear from his several case examples and illustrations that Christ expects his disciples to feed his sheep on two levels, physically and spiritually. Christ's followers are to do our best to ensure that those we encounter do not go hungry for food. But also as His followers, we are to give out spiritual food, godly compassion to go along with the teaching of God's Word to those who are willing to hear it. God provides. We distribute. That's the formula. And as Yeshua's disciples, for them, it's not a slogan, but rather it's our responsibility. It was their responsibility to feed His sheep. And as with the first feeding occasion, everyone in the crowd ate their fill with food left over. We cannot ignore the number seven because it's used twice in this short story. First is the number of loaves of bread, and finally is the number of baskets that were left over. It's interesting that in the first story of miraculous multiplication, that the number of baskets filled with leftovers was 12, and the beginning number of loaves was 5, while the number of fish was 2, 12, 5, and 2. I explained at that time that while I can't be sure, assuming the numbers five and two were meant to be symbolic, then perhaps they symbolize the five books of the Torah with the two symbolizing the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love our fellow man. But now that we see the use of seven in this second episode of Feeding a Large Crowd, when we couple it with the 12 baskets of leftovers in the first story, it's hard to get around not seeing symbolism in those numbers. Now, remembering that the Jewish believer Matthew was writing his gospel to Jews, the numbers 12 and 7 would have caught their eyes 
as well-known symbolic numbers. In the Bible, 12 regularly is used to symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. Yeshua has said He came only to do what? Feed the lost sheep of the house of Israel, meaning all 12 tribes. So after the first feeding, there were 12 baskets left over, one for each tribe. Thus Matthew was likely highlighting this inspiring lesson of Yeshua's mission to feed physically and spiritually the entire house of Israel, all 12 tribes. Now as for the number seven in our second story, seven is the divine number of completion. It represents a fullness, a wholeness. Therefore, at times, the number seven is given the label of the ideal number. The number seven is associated with acts of God and God's will. I cannot imagine that the first Jews who read Matthew's Gospel would not have immediately latched on to this understanding, and we should as well. So the first feeding, and that one, the twelve remaining baskets speak of Christ's large audience of the twelve tribes, and in the second feeding, seven speaks of an act of God's will and the wholeness and the perfection of it. Now, would the disciples or the people have understood that at that moment? We're not told. My suspicion is they would not, because too much was happening to stop and, and think about it. See, this is why we all need Sabbath, the seventh day, as a time to stop, kind of clear the decks, and have the time and the peace to think upon things that go on in our lives, to put them in proper perspective, and to give thanks to God as our provider and as the one who is guiding us through our journey. Now, verse 38 says, There were a number of people who were there and were fed, and that it was 4,000 men, plus women and children. Now, so the total number would have been in the range of around 8,000 people or so. Now, understand that in biblical terminology, Old or New Testaments, any type of counting of people taking a census was of the males only. This was not to devalue women or children, but rather it reflected a male-dominated society and the central place of the family unit in those days. A mature male was assumed to have a wife, and then further assumed to have some number of children. The entire economies of ancient times Jewish and all other, were based on the existence of family units, described as male husband, female wife, and then some healthy number of offspring. The chapter closes with Yeshua dismissing the crowd, walking down to the lake, getting into a boat, and making his way to Magadan. Now there's a lot of, lot of theories as to the identification of ancient Magadan. The first 10 verses 
of Mark chapter 8 tell the same story, nearly word for word. However, when Jesus leaves, Mark lists his destination as a different place than Matthew does. And Mark 8.10, after sending them away, Yeshua got into the boat with his Talmudim and they went off to the district of Dalmanuta. Now it's possible that Magadan and Dalmanuta were two names for the same place. The first, the Hebrew name, the second, maybe the name the Romans gave it. Or it is that whatever information Matthew and Mark drew upon came from different sources that used different names. I don't know. Some Bible scholars surmise that Magadan was another name for Magdala, which itself is another name for a town called Migdal. If this is the place, it's located just a couple miles south of Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, not very far from Tiberias. Well, this last verse of chapter 15 basically serves to set up what happens next that will begin chapter 16. Now, please, please keep at the forefront of your minds that no such things as chapter markings for these gospel accounts or for any biblical account existed. And they wouldn't for another millennium after they were written. So we can get this impression of a pause between the final verse of one chapter and the first verse of the next, but that was not the thought of the writer. It wasn't the structure he wrote it in. Mentally, we just need to erase those chapter markings to keep, to keep that intended flow of thought and words of the author. Okay, next week we will begin Matthew chapter 16.